to continue our study in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter two, and for the next few sessions, we'll probably camp out in chapter two, verses five through 11. And this is what is often referred to as the kenosis passage of scripture. The word kenosis interpreted just means the self-emptying. And so this entire passage is about Christ as God emptying himself in certain ways to take on human form. It's a really powerful uh, set of scriptures right here. And tonight what I want to do is I want us to talk about the natures of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain a little bit of that here in a few minutes. Pick it up in verse five. The Bible says this. Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, as we, as we read this portion of scripture, there, there are some people that believe it's oftentimes called the kenosis hymn. And the reason it's called that is that there is speculation that Paul, these weren't necessarily his original words, that he had taken like a, a beginning position from a creed that had been written from people that had gone before him as they were trying to shore up who they believed and about Christ. And they believed because Paul you know, he, there are certain phrases in this that he never uses anywhere else in his writings. And so there's speculation that somebody else actually wrote this. There's not really a lot of evidence for that. But the point is, is simply this, that, that we still believe that it's God's word. Whether Paul was copying what someone else wrote, he was still guided and directed by the spirit of God. And this is a powerful, powerful portion of scripture. But in this, Paul uses some pretty provocative language about Jesus, um, he calls him, he calls Jesus God, that he was equal with God, but he also then calls God human, that, that Jesus, you know, emptied himself and took on human form, that Jesus humbled himself, he emptied himself, but then there's coming a day where Jesus will be exalted. I mean, you have the entirety of the gospels, you know, right here in this little portion of scripture that takes Jesus from the incarnation all the way to the, the resurrection. To the reader at Philippi, this would have been simply to the, excuse me, to the Christian reader at Philippi, where this letter was being sent, this would not have necessarily been like eye-opening news for them. They knew what they believed about Christ. This would have been a reaffirming. It would have been a reminder. It's kind of like when you come to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday and you hear the pastor and he teaches about something that you already know, you already believe it, but there's something in your spirit, you just double down and you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I do believe in the power of prayer. Yes, God moves in miraculous. Yes, I believe this. For the readers at the Church of Philippi, that's what this would have been. It wasn't that Paul was discovering, you know, who God was and explaining it, who Jesus was and explaining it, but he was, he was reminding them of who Jesus was because we've got to keep in mind 
that the people of Philippi, they were still in, in, in a, you know, a Greco-Roman culture. It was a culture that was very logical in many ways. You know, they, they were the ones that had the Stoics and they would go and they would have these debates in these huge arenas. And it was all about, uh, you know, logicizing things. And so you had one group of, of this culture and they would just over logicize everything. And they would make everything about the material world and all this. And then you'd have this other group. And, you know, this is where Paul walks in and he sees all these idols. And he's like, man, you guys are super religious, you know? And so you've got these two kind of different veins within the culture. Well, the people of Philippi are constantly exposed to this. And it's not just that they're exposed to one or the other, they're exposed to both. And we see this as, as Paul goes to Philippi, um, I, I believe it's for the first time, and he, he encounters the girl who is, who is possessed and she's being used like a hand puppet. And he, you know, he rebukes her and all of this kind of thing. Um, there was an uproar because they were using something spiritual in a logical way even though it was demonic, they were using it in a logical way. And you had this like, just this culture of like hyper logic, but also this weird like spirituality. It reminds us a lot of where we're at in, in our current culture. But I want to remind us that, that for the readers of Philippi, they were in this culture where they're seeing and hearing all these things. What do we believe about this? What do we think about that? Paul just steps in and he says, let me remind you. Let me remind you who Jesus is. Let me remind you that he is God, but let me remind you he is human and therefore he can make atonement for us through his sacrifice. And so in this scenario where you've got, um, you've got these, these different groups of people in the culture, um, there are a lot of heresies that begin to spring up in the first couple of hundred years, really, of, you know, after the resurrection. And it, I, I want to I say this. I want to say that you remember for the first couple of hundred years, the, the Christian people did not have a Bible in the way that we have a Bible today, right? The Christian people, they had pieces of scripture. They may have a letter from Paul, but that letter was circulated through all these different churches. And so they were just taking copies of copies. But, you know, when they stood in the pulpit, Timothy didn't look and say, hey guys, I want you to turn to, you know, Titus chapter one, verse 23. He couldn't say that. They didn't have a Bible in the way that we have a Bible today. And so what would oftentimes happen is that you would have these heresies spring up and, you know, it would be kind of, you know, sound right or kind of like the truth, but it would be just enough off that it would lead down a road of destruction. And so for the first couple of hundred years of the church, you had all of these things come up and what people were doing is they were only, some people were only able to see partial truth. They only had a little bit of knowledge about the life of Jesus. And the mistake that they began to make is that they began to make assumptions about who he was. They began to bring their own conclusions to the table instead of submitting themselves to the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures they had and the church fathers. And so all of a sudden you've got all these heresies that begin to spring up, all of these wrong teachings. And tonight what I wanna do is I wanna to talk to you about two of these false teachings that we are actually seeing reborn in our modern culture today. And we we need to be aware of these things, okay? So what I want to do is I want to briefly share with you, um, very briefly, about the natures of Christ, and then I want to talk to you about two heresies then and the two heresies um, that we need to be aware of for today. The natures of Christ were this. We believe, in your notes, that Jesus had a divine nature, okay? We do not believe that Jesus exchanged deity to become human. We do not believe that, okay? 
We believe based on scripture that Jesus was completely divine. Even as he walked the earth, he was 100% divine. Paul said it pleased him that the fullness of deity was in the dwelling body of Jesus Christ. And so we believe that Jesus was divine in this way. We believe that Jesus was all-knowing. We believe that he was all-powerful. We believe that Jesus was God. But we also believe that there came a moment in the incarnation where Jesus emptied himself of certain things. In other words, he laid certain things aside. Now, there are some people that say Jesus laid aside his divine attributes, and then people say, God, you know, that would mean he's not God. So, it, you know, let's not use the word attributes. Let's use the word privileges. So, you know, Jesus didn't lay aside his attributes, but his divine privileges. Whatever you want to call it is semantics. The idea is this, is that Jesus did not become, you know, just human and no longer God. He didn't become a lesser form of God. He, he, didn't, he was completely divine. And although... Uh, you know, I, I just said semantics. Wording is important. How we make definition, it is important. I'm just simply saying this, that Jesus laid down certain things, but it's important to remember that there are times in his life where we see him pick up those things again. So for instance, we believe that Jesus was all-knowing, but there were times even Jesus himself said, I don't know. There, there was a time, you remember, they asked about the coming of the Lord and they said, Lord, tell us when, you know, when is this going to happen? And Jesus said, not even the angels of heaven, not even the son himself knows, only the father knows. Okay. And so we see Jesus, there were times where he willingly chose to limit himself. He, he chose that there were certain things he was just not going to know. But then we find Jesus where there were times he picked up that all knowing and he, he cloaked himself with it. And he could read into the hearts of men and women. And he could tell them about the future. And he could tell them these things. There were times, surely, where it rained on Jesus, where thunderstorms came. But then there were also times where Jesus picked up the, the, you know, the, the, the all-powerful nature of who he was. And he silenced nature, right? And so there were these different things. But Jesus did not become less God or not God. He was completely divine. He just simply laid aside certain things temporarily. Okay, so Jesus had a divine nature, but Jesus also, number two, had a human nature. So as perplexing as this can be for all of us with our finite minds, simultaneously, he was God, but we also believe that he was completely human. Okay, we believe that Jesus grew hungry. We believe that Jesus needed human relationship with other people. We believe that he needed rest. There were times where clearly he was tired. He would take naps. He would retreat. He needed to reprieve. We believe that, that Jesus was as human as he had bowel movements. I mean, he was, he was that human, and we emphatically believe that. But it's very, very difficult to, to understand these two natures because we've never seen anything like it before or since, okay? So R.C. Sproul, this is how he kind of summarizes it. He says this, Christ is truly human and truly God, and these two natures are perfectly united with no mixture, confusion, separation, or division. So you ask, well, how are they united, but there's not mixture, right? So it's like these two perfect 
unions of the nature of Christ. And it's very, very difficult to understand. I don't even fully comprehend. But it's this whole idea that uh, uh, the difference between a separation, it wasn't that there were two separate natures, but there was a distinction between the natures. He was both fully God and fully man. Um, it, l- let, me, let me just provide a couple of very um, loose ideas to help us really understand what I mean by this. So for instance, Jesus's human mind had access to his divine mind, but he did not always choose to access it. Does that make sense? So Jesus had a divine nature, a divine or a human nature, a divine mind, a human mind, and the human part of Jesus, oh, I hate using certain words because I'm I'm afraid I'm going to breed confusion, but Jesus did not always access that divine nature because he laid it aside, but he could access it any time that he chose, according to the will of the Father, okay? Jesus's divine body had no needs, right? And we see this after the resurrection, right? He walks through walls, like there's, there's no, I mean, he's, it's a supernatural thing. Jesus's divine body has no needs, but his human body needed food, right? There were times he was like, I'm hungry, right? When, when are we going to eat, right? I'm multiplying the bread, but save me some, okay? So it's, it's this idea that, that he not only laid aside certain attributes of divinity, but it's that he picked up humanity and the, and the needs that, that humans would have. And in this, his two natures coincided. They, they coexisted, okay? Now, thoroughly confused everyone, including myself. So let me, let me quickly move on um, so I don't get fired. Um, I want to talk to you very, very quickly about two of the heresies in the early church that sprung up because people did not understand that Jesus was human, but also divine. The reason that these heresies came up is because people did not understand what what I've just, you know, tried to explain, okay? The first heresy is this. It's a heresy called adoptionism. It's the idea and the belief that Jesus was a human. He was born human, and he became God, okay? So it's the idea that Jesus was born, and he, you know, lived a sinless life. He lived so pure for so long that at his, at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, that at that moment, he was, he was accepted by God the Father, and he was adopted by God as God. So it's almost like Jesus evolved into God, okay? Now, this is an enormous, an enormous heresy. This, this, we do not believe this. We believe that Jesus is eternal, we believe that he, at, at the, before the creation of all things, he was there. After all things are gone, he will be there. We believe that he is an eternal being. He, he was not created. He did not come into existence. He has always been. Okay, that's what we believe about Christ. This heresy believes that Jesus was born a human and he kind of became a God. We see this a lot in Eastern religions you know, with like Buddhism and, and different things like that. If you will just, you know, Buddha did so well and he sacrificed so much that he inherited deity. That is not what we believe about Jesus. And so this is what happened. In the 300s, 
um, you have Constantine who is ruling over the empire, okay? And all of a sudden, um, Constantine becomes a Christian and what he wants to do is he understands that his empire, it's strong, but what has really cemented his empire is the religion of the Christian faith. So now not only does he have, you know, the, the, the armies and the masses and the economy, but now he's got the hearts of the people because he believes what they believe. And he sees this thread that's just woven and it, it cements his kingdom together. And so all of a sudden there's this guy that shows up on the scene. He's, uh, his name is Arius. And he begins teaching kind of this idea of adoptionism, that Jesus wasn't really God. He was kind of like God but he wasn't really God. Um, we call it, it's often called the Superman heresy, like, like Clark Kent. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, Arius believed that, um, you know, kind of like Clark Kent, he, he wasn't God, but he was greater than human, right? He was, he was better than a human, but he was less than God. And Arius, this is what he began to teach. Well, it began to gain traction around the empire. And so all these people began, you know, to kind of, man, if, if that's the case, if Jesus isn't really God, you know, all these kind of things, all these debates, it reaches Constantine. And what he realizes is that the Christian church, there's about to be a fracture. There's about to be a division because of this teaching. And so what he does, he calls together this council of Nicaea. And so all of these, you know, hundreds of, of bishops and delegates, they all show up. And on one side of the aisle, you've got, you know, Arius who's teaching that Jesus kind of like, you know, he, he kind of like became, he was so sinless and so good that he was kind of adopted by God as the son of God, but he wasn't really God. Uh, you had this thing out. But then on the other side of the aisle, you've got this guy named Athanasius. And Athanasius is like, no, that is not what we believe. We believe that Jesus is eternal. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus is equal with God. He is not kind of like God. He is God. He's not kind of the same substance, got some of the same stuff that God has. He is God. He has everything. And so they meet at this council and they end up, it, it ends up getting way out of hand. This is where like, you know, it's rumored that St. Nicholas goes over and smacks Arius in the face and calls him a heretic and a liar. And, you know, all these men are like grabbing his notes and tearing them and stomping them and basically running them out of town. And and so at the Council of Nicaea, this is where all that kind of happens. And so what is born out of that is what we call the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed isn't something like new, but the Nicene Creed, what it did is it looked at the scriptures and it picked out things and it said, these are the things that we believe about Jesus. And as a result of that heresy, what it did for the church even today is it gave us solid footing for what we believe about Jesus. And I thank God for that, right? And so it's not that Jesus evolved. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit anointed him and that God the Father looked and he was like, man, he's a good guy. I'm gonna welcome him in. That is not the case. Jesus is God. And so adoptionism or the belief that Jesus kind of became God or anointed by God, um, that, that, that's a heresy and we, we've got to stay away from it. We believe that Jesus is God. Now, on the other side, you have this, um, notion. So on, on the side that we just spoke of, it was, it really played into the idea that Jesus was more human than he was divine. Okay. That's what adoptionism is. This other heresy that comes up is a heresy called docetism. And this is the belief that Jesus was not human, but completely divine. So you've got on one side, they're saying, no, he's, 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 not divine, he's human. And then on the other side, they say, no, he's not human, he's divine. You've got these two trenches that are dug, 
And the people in the early church, they're just, man, help us figure this out. Holy Spirit, you know, the church fathers, all these kind of things. So they're navigating through all this. And so this idea of docetism, it's, it's connected to Gnostics, uh, uh, the Gnostics. And Gnostics, just in a nutshell, this is what they believe. They believe that the material world is evil. Everything that you can touch, feel, it is evil, yourself, all of these things, it is all evil. And the only thing that can be good is whatever is metaphysical or spiritual, okay? And so they did not believe that Jesus was um, um, human because they believed that if he was human, then he would have been evil, right? That's what they believed. And so they said, no, we believe that Jesus is God, but we don't believe that he was human. And so they tried to logicize this and they said, well, you know, it was that Jesus came to the earth. We believe that he's God. We believe that he came to earth, but it was more like a hologram or kind of like, you know, it was kind of like the ghost of God that was walking around. He appeared to be human, but he really wasn't human. He was completely divine, okay? And so by the time we get to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John is addressing this issue. And, and he's saying, no, that is not, it, it, because the, the case is simply this. Jesus was divine, but it was so vital for him to become human so that he could atone for our sins. If Jesus was not human, his blood was not a worthy sacrifice. He had to live a sinless, spotless life so that he could atone for the sins of, of, of people. And so this idea of him just being divine, it sounds really good, but we cannot embrace that because if he was just completely divine, that means that our sins are still not atoned for, okay? And so the, the early church fathers and, and throughout, you know, early Christendom, the way that they would kind of combat these heresies at times is they would tell stories and they would, you know, write letters. They would communicate all these things. But one of the, the major things that they did is oftentimes they would create sculptures or art pieces or stained glass or whatever the case is. And they would tell the story of scripture or they would focus on one element of scripture that they believed and they would try to communicate through art the core foundations of what Christians believe. And so oftentimes what you'll see, I know I've shared this before, I don't have a photo, but oftentimes what you'll see in, in paintings of the Christ child is you'll oftentimes see Jesus as a little infant, but he'll have this halo right? There's like this glow around his head. And what the artist is trying to communicate is that Jesus is divine. He is God, hence the halo, right? So they're trying to communicate that he's God. But in that same painting, what you'll see is Jesus as a child, and he's nursing at the breast of Mary. And so what the, what the artist is trying to communicate, they're saying, yes, he's completely divine, but he is also completely human and so human that he had to nurse at the breast of his mother. That's how human he was, that he needed sustenance from his mother. And so it's, it's fascinating when you begin to dig into to art and these different things, you begin to see things. And, you know, for so long, I'm like, that's weird. I don't understand why they have a child nursing. Like, why didn't they just show her holding him? But when you begin to really inspect and dig in, you begin to see the beauty and the value of what the artist was trying to communicate. And in all of those photos, in all of those paintings, all of those diagrams, what the author is trying to communicate is that Jesus was divine, yes, but that Jesus was also completely human. And so what I want to do just to kind of wrap things up 
is to simply say two things. I want to read the, I want to read a creed to you, okay? So throughout church history, as the church began to clarify the core beliefs of, of what, you know, Christians should believe, the, the core of our faith, there were these things that began to come out from the church fathers. They were called creeds. And so you have the Nicene Creed and you have, you have all these types of creeds. Well, when docetism kind of rises its head and it's, it's talking about, no, Jesus was just completely divine. He wasn't human, you know. If he were human, he would have been evil and all of this. And so one of the, one of the creeds that came out are, are the Chaldean Creed. Uh, or not the, I lost my, my train. Anyway, um, it, this creed came out. And basically, as we read through, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear language where they are affirming, they're affirming the, the deity of Christ, but they're also affirming the, the human nature of Christ. It's really, really a powerful thing. This is what the writers say. They say, we then, following the Holy Fathers, in other words, they're saying, even though it's hundreds of years later, we're following the Apostle John, we're following the Apostle Paul and what they believed, all with one content, teach men to confess on and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Do you see what they did right there? He's perfect in Godhead, but he's also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, con, uh, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, but without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same son and only begotten, God the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So do you see what the church fathers are doing? They're not like creating this new doctrine. What they're doing is they're reaching back into the scriptures and they're trying to help hundreds of thousands of Christians that do not have access to the scriptures. And they're trying to make bite-sized chunks of creeds saying, listen, this is what the scripture teaches. And this is a creed that maybe you can memorize or maybe that you can keep on a piece of papyrus or something like that. But you need to understand out of all of the, the access to scripture that you were denied, if you can understand this about Jesus Christ, you will be fine. That's what all of these councils, all of these creeds are trying to do. They're trying to dismiss the heresies and embrace the truth of what scripture teaches. And so Clement, just to, to round off here before Pastor Glenn comes, Clement, one of the early church fathers in one of his writings, he, he simply said this. As it relates to who Jesus was as completely human, completely divine, this is how he summarized everything. 
He said, we must learn to think about Jesus as we think about God. There is not a distinction. We have these debates. You have these people. A couple of weeks ago, I had somebody reach out to me online and they said, I just, I mean, a Christian for 25 years. And she said, I just struggle because of the nature of God that I feel like I see in the Old Testament and the nature of Jesus I see in the New Testament. It feels like they're not the same. And so I had to dig into this thing where I I just helped her understand. She was basically saying, all I see in the Old Testament is the wrath of God. And all I see in the New Testament is the goodness and the grace of God. And I tried to help her understand a couple of things that I think we all need to understand. And, And those couple of things are this. Number one, when you look at the Old Testament scriptures, you're talking about thousands of years of human history. Thousands of years of human history and God's interaction with people through that human history. And so, of course, you're going to see more acts of judgment come from God as he deals with rebellious creation. You're going to see more instances of the wrath of God being poured out. But I think it's important to understand in the New Testament, you're only dealing with less than 100 years of human history, not thousands of years. But do you know how much wrath is poured out in the New Testament scriptures? There's a bunch, not only the wrath that's poured out on Jesus, but the verbal assault that Jesus poured out on the hypocrites and the Pharisees, the physical wrath that came upon Herod as the worms ate him from the inside out, the wrath of God that fell on Ananias and Sapphira, not to mention the entire book of Revelation. You're talking about a hundred years, you know, or less really that were recorded and you see all these things and it's substantial if we pay attention. But the Old Testament, you're talking about thousands of years, so of course you're going to see it more. But I also reminded her of this, that the most, that there is a scripture throughout the Old Testament that is repeated by the writers of the New Testament more than any other scripture. And it's found in the book of Exodus that simply remind us of who God is, that he is a just God, but he is a merciful God, extending grace and extending mercy to thousands and generations. And it just goes on and on and on. And the essence of, of the reason that scripture is repeated over and over again is because God is trying to help us understand the same thing that he's trying to help us understand about wrath. In the same way that there are certain things that will provoke the anger of God and God will act upon that. That's part of who God is. But there is another part of who God is that is all loving and ever merciful and gracious and abounding in blessing and steadfast love for generations and generations. But you see, we get skewed because we say, well, we see how kind Jesus was in this short. Yeah, Jesus was kind, but Jesus, Jesus would cut you deep and wide. I mean, you, you read the woes. Just do a word study in New Testament. The word woe, W-O-E, which was basically a, a pronounced curse. Read how many times Jesus made statements like that. It's not that Jesus went from, you know, God in the Old Testament to a new God in the New Testament. That is an old heresy. He did not become a new God. He did not change who he was. We just have a scope of thousands of years of history, but then we have a little snippet of New Testament. And so I understand it's very confusing and very frustrating, but I'm simply saying all that to say this, that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at Jehovah God. We are looking at the same God that was in Genesis at creation and Leviticus given the law. We are looking at the same God. And when we think of Jesus, 
we need to begin to think of him in the same way that we think of God. Amen. Amen.